Hey, hey there, all you guys and gals and cats. Diesel Powered, Disciples of Cool. This is the voice of Diesel Punk, the Diesel Powered Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And I am your host, the King of Swing, the Tower of Power, the artist also known as Big Daddy Cool Johnny. And I am coming at you from fabulous Nash Vegas at the Casa de Cool. Not in the Houdini room tonight. I am actually in the uh, in the living room lounge, coming to you live via Skype on my iPhone. So if you hear some background noise from the kitchen, just uh, ignore that. Um, <laughs> joining me via the magic of the interwebs is the chairman of the board from Dallas-Fort Worth, the boss, Larry Emmett. Hey, Johnny. Hey, everybody. Good to be here. And all the way from Memphis, Tennessee, our daring darling of the skies, the one, the only, the lovely and talented Miss Daisy O'Dare. Oh, jeez. You're making me blush. Anyway, what's buzzing, cousin? You are, darling. And, I sure uh, am. Enough coffee and I will. <laughs> And joining us from the Detroit, Michigan area, but not for much longer, is uh, one of the uh, cohorts of the Agent Carter Declassified Roundtable, the author of Dragonfly, our retrofuturism expert himself, the one, the only, Mr. Charles Cornell. I'm still finding creativity in the chaos. <laughs> Glad to have you with us tonight, Charles. We're going to be talking about um, retrofuturism tonight, and um, you know, you're one of uh, one of the guys I consider to be an expert in the genre. And uh, so, when Larry suggested uh, talking about it tonight, I said, "Well, we we got to pull Charles in," and um, and and I'm so glad that you were able to join us once again and to, to be a part of the cast of the Diesel Powered Podcast. Great to be here. Always love talking diesel punk. Very cool. Well, Larry, um, up first, we got some pretty cool news last week, and you actually beat me to the punch and posted it on, uh, on our Facebook page, but I just want to go on record as saying I got it right. Yes. You guys, you guys remember? It may have already been four years ago, but I, I think it was about three years ago. Um, we had this discussion, and it was right after the sale of Lucasfilm to Disney. And I said, "Guys, I'm telling you right now, this concept art is out there. There will be an Indiana Jones animated feature or an animated series coming." And You'll remember Mr. Wofford kind of moaned at that. Mm. Um, but I said, I, I, I promise you it's going to happen. And lo and behold, we got the news this week that um, the artist of that concept art, um, his name is, oh, where did I, did I lose it? Uh, um, uh, Daniel uh, Schoenmacher, Patrick Schoenmacher. Patrick, yeah. Yeah. Schoenmacher. I'll, I'll leave that to you. <laughs> or Shoemaker. Schoenmacher. Patrick Schoenmacher. I think that's right. Um, he's the guy who did that concept art. 
And it was originally, I, I didn't realize this, but it was originally concept art to promote uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Ew. Hey, now. <laughs> I know we have our disagreements about the, the veracity of that movie, but uh, uh, it's Indiana Jones, so I still love it. Um, and, and so, you know, it started making all the buzz, though, about three or four years ago as people were discovering it online because Lucasfilm didn't do anything with that concept art. They, they had it commissioned, he did it, and it just kind of sat and, and didn't go anywhere. And Patrick had, had, pitched, had pitched the uh, animated series to Lucasfilm, and they, they decided they didn't want to do it. And, um, but, but according to the article, Patrick Schoenmacher could not get the idea and the concept of an Indiana Jones animated feature out of his head. So for the past five years, five years, he has been working on his own without telling anyone on his own animated Indiana Jones animated movie. It's true, it's a fan film, but it's going to be released September 29th, just, uh, what, about a week and a half. And, Larry, you'll have to remind me and the listeners, I'm sure it's only going to be released for free online because there's no way he, he could be charging and release it legally. See, I got... Wondering about that, um, how he was going to do so unless he's gotten approval from Disney, since they now own the rights. Uh, let's see. A shoemaker is a particular, uh, and a Disney who now owns the rights to Indiana after the purchase aren't completely insane. They'll be considering this rather bold calling card seriously. I honestly don't know. Well, you know, I had a discussion with um, <clears throat> with uh, Eric Fisk, who who produces the uh, Fedora Chronicles podcast, and, and I was a guest on his show a couple of months ago, and we were talking about the new rules that Paramount Pictures issued in response to the fan film Star Trek Abraxas. Right. Because that started out as an independent fan film, but it became a fully funded Hollywood production with a Kickstarter campaign and A-list directors, actors, writers, and Paramount shut them down mm -hmm. um, and, and basically said, hey, guys, if you want to do fan films, that's okay. And here are kind of the Ten Commandments of fan films you know, from Paramount, but really, I would say it probably applies across the board. And and one of them was that it had to be, you know, less than 30 minutes. Right. Um, it couldn't be distributed for commercial uh, sale. It had to be distributed for free. Um, you know, it had to, in, in the case of Star Trek, they had to use uh, officially licensed props and costume pieces. Um, so that was a little bit of a money grab for Paramount, but I would say probably Lucasfilm, 
would be looking at this animated Indiana Jones in kind of the same way. Well, I'm looking at his site, and he has a blog. And for September 9th, he has a little uh, chalk drawing. He has this little, looks like Indiana Jones's uh, uh, classroom. Yeah, yeah. And on it is a, it looks like Indy uh, wrote, the professor will be back September 29th. Uh, and he says underneath it, there you have it. September 29th is the official release date for my animated Indiana Jones project. So whip out your calendars and mark the date. Just a little disclaimer, though. Please don't expect a full feature film or even a 20-minute episode. Animation is a lot of work, and there's only so much you can accomplish with a small team of one and a handful of assistants. Think more like something along the lines of a fully animated proof of concept. Aha! Well, that's, that's a whole other ballgame altogether. So yes. we're probably we're probably looking at a five between five ten minute short. Looking at sound, yeah, uh, pretty wild. Which I'm still excited about. It, yeah, it's so cool. Because here's the thing, I, I I've been saying this for years now. I mean, you guys know I've been an evangelist for this. I think Indiana Jones is perfect. For an an animated serial, you know, uh, well, serial, an animated serial, you know, in in the classic, uh, you know, movie reel cartoons. And uh, I, for one, would love, 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 love to see the further adventures of Indiana Jones on Disney or Disney XD. Look. They're doing it with Star Wars Rebels, and they were hugely successful with the Clone Wars from the Star Wars franchise. I can't imagine that Indiana Jones wouldn't have the same reception from fans. Well, sure, maybe one of them, maybe Amazon or Netflix might pick something up that. Yeah, you never can tell. So, uh, hopefully... Um, Patrick will get Disney's attention, and they'll uh, they'll consider it his resume, if you will, and uh, give him the reins. I, I'd like to try to get him on the show, Larry. Um, so I've been reaching out to him, and hopefully we can uh, get an interview with Patrick uh, for maybe our next episode. That would be cool. Yeah. So anyway, that was uh, the the big news that I wanted to break with tonight and and to open up with. Daisy, Charles, you guys have any uh, thoughts about animated Indiana Jones? Well, it'd be kind of I I think it'd be kind of nice for for them to do something like they just done with Star Wars, which is create a new a new Indiana Jones um, live action. Hmm. You know, I thought I I you know I think these are it's a new generation of viewers, right? So they're trying to appeal to the younger Star Wars fans. Why not create something for people who've never seen the original ones, uh, the original uh, Indiana Jones? Well, and there is a new film in development. And um, there's there's been some uh, disagreement between Disney, Lucasfilm, and Steven Spielberg 
And, um, you know, Spielberg does not want to go with a, uh, a new actor for Indiana Jones. He wants Harrison Ford to come back. Um, but I, I don't know. I think, I think he's kind of standing in the way of, of moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it, to, to some degree, both Star Wars and, and Indiana Jones are suffering from the James Bond syndrome, right? All of us who, who grew up with Sean Connery couldn't imagine anybody else's James Bond, but you have to move That's on. True. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the guy's only going to be around for so long. I mean... Yeah. Well, I wonder if we're kind of getting to the end of the reboots. You know, people might be getting a little... I don't know if... I haven't seen the box office on some of those, but I wonder if they're getting a little tired of... Well, I guess I mentioned, I kind of mentioned it, Larry, because when, you know, I, I don't watch cartoons of my age. <laughs> not, not usually, but, um, yeah, right. Uh, but, you know, I'm, what I'm thinking is, you know, you, cart- it's a way to introduce the whole genre to younger viewers. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, true. they're going to grow older, right? They're going to grow out of cartoons. So I'm thinking, you know, depending on what age they're targeting the, the, the graphic novel style, um, Stories, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how much longer it would take a couple of years probably before they build an audience up. Hollywood's all about audience, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they're building audiences. They they got new generation, and and just to answer um, Johnny's question is, yeah, I mean, I just think of it as a way in which we're we're again trying to create create exposure um, for the diesel punk genre. Yeah, and you know. A lot of people have said, you know, you can't have someone else play Indiana Jones. It's got to be Harrison Ford. And and I say to that, well, why? Um, how How is Indiana Jones any different than James Bond? You know, exactly. we've had so many characters, so many actors play James Bond because it is a serial. And, and that is what the Indiana Jones movies are modeled after. And look, we've had different actors play Indiana Jones. On Young Indiana Jones, um, uh, wh- what's his name? Sean Patrick Flattery. Um, and and uh, in, in uh, Last Crusade, River Phoenix played a young Indiana Jones. So, you know, I think it's a property that can absolutely, like James Bond, like Jason Bourne, it can uh, have different people play the lead character. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's my two cents. <laughs> we'll just have to see. We'll just have to see. Uh, you know, I think Daisy, didn't you have a uh, have a book recently that you finished up? Yep, yep. They, I've got a I got a backlog of books that I've been working on, and uh, a lot of them have to do with Diesel era history or characters that came out of that era. And um, I put it up on my page to see which one uh, people wanted to hear about first, because I have a couple that I was working on, and uh, the one that seemed to get the most buzz was The Secret History of Wonder Woman by Jill Lepore. And um, I was told by my good buddy Jeff, who I also uh, salute as my Captain Greenhill of the uh, Mechanist Ascendant, that um, that it would make my hair curl. <laughs> I don't know if he's actually read the book, but uh, it's partly 
it doesn't really tell Wonder Woman's story so much as the story of her creators and the time and the family that they grew up in and the strange little family that they created. You know, they were um, coming of age in a time where there was a lot of different... Um, people are forgetting, you know, exactly how... exactly how progressive the 1910s and 1920s were getting. Like, um, they, had, they were starting to... You know, the suffrage, the suffrage movement was coming up, and then other, you know, people were becoming more free about sex, a little more free about sex and things like that, and it was um, kind of a wild time. You know, we look back at it and we think it looks real quaint, but uh, things were pretty wild back then, and um, basically Wonder Woman's creator, um, well, actually she has several creators, because um, they all kind of contributed bits and pieces of themselves and their experiences to her. But uh, the name that Wonder Woman was written under was uh, William Marston, who was a uh, psychologist who was also known for inventing the lie detector, which, you know, you have Wonder Woman's lasso of truth. And um, it's really interesting because even though it tells... It's mostly a biography. It's mostly a biography of the uh, of Dr. Marston and of um, the two women that he he had a little family with. He was married to he was married to one woman, and they and they had another woman who lived with them. And she the uh, the other woman who lived with them actually uh, was where we get Wonder Woman's bracelets from because she was known for going around wearing bracelets like Wonder Woman has. So all these little details that you find in their biographies, as you look at Wonder Woman after that, you start to see all these, um, oh, so that's where he got it, that kind of thing. So it's kind of a, it unfolds kind of slowly, but uh, it all comes together at the end, and you're like, and once they finally get to where they actually start talking about the creation of Wonder Woman, you see how it all kind of came together and how this wild ride really turned into um, something that has lasted um, for ages and has become a real um, feminist icon. That's really interesting. Oh, I just learned something new. You did? I had no idea that Marston created the lie detector. Well, we don't know if he really created it. That's disputed, but he liked to go around saying he created it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he got that uh, inspiration, you know, that's where a lasso of truth comes from. Because he did invent a machine that he claimed, you know, measured things like body temperature, blood pressure, the rate of sweating. He was really interested in people's emotional reactions to things. And so he not only did that, but he also did this study where um, he hooked up women with different hair colors to this machine and had them watch some really uh, moving films and uh, to see who was the uh, most sensitive. <laughs> you know, he was a kind of a showman, so he was always looking for ways to, to promote himself, to get himself out there. And uh, I think he, uh, he and um, his wife and... His 
the other woman who lived with them all live. They have a pretty lasting legacy, I'd say, in Wonder Woman. Yeah, you're being very polite about their relationship. <laughs> oh, goodness yes, I was thinking that. I, you know what? I, I'm afraid if I had to explain it, <laughs> we'd be here for two hours. Well, <clears throat> I, you know, they, they, they're really one of the earliest models of a polyamorous relationship. Yes, yes. polyamorous. That's, yes, that's the term that was coming to my mind, yeah. They were polyamorous, and, uh, you know, I think he had children with both of them, and um, his, the woman that he was legally married to was the one she went out and she, did, and she worked, and the, the other woman that was in the relationship, Olive, she stayed home and uh, raised the kids and became a, a regular contributor to the Family Circle magazine. So there was a lot of talk about that magazine in there, too. Uh, but, that, yeah. That, that, that entire relationship was... Secret, yes. for the most part. Yes. Um, until recently, secret, they kept it a secret from their own kids. I mean, even their wow, kids that, that's interesting. They gave. I think they didn't really tell them until they were grown up. I mean, yeah, there is a lot that I'm skipping over right now, only because I don't want to take up too much time. Well, but it I is also, a fascinating story. Oh, it is so fascinating. If you want to read about some really big personalities and some people who were very inventive and innovative and also about the early feminist movement. You know, people like to think feminism started in the 60s. It did not. <laughs> it did not. And um, early feminism was really quite radical. So you get um, to find out about some of the early... Uh, early leaders in the feminist movement as well. I think uh, Margaret Sanger was actually a uh, close with um, the Marston clan as well. Yeah, and uh, according to what I've read, after uh, Marston died, his wife and their sweetie, their, mm -hmm. their significant other, um, the, the two women stayed together they did. Um, they did until until death do us part. Right, you know, they, there was this bond that was formed, you know, and I guess that was the way they wanted to live. And these were people who were living how they wanted to live, and they did not care about what the morals and standards were. They wanted to make new morals and new standards. Boy, isn't that the kind of definition of punk? I'd say... A little bit, I'd yeah. I'd say they were punk. Yeah, they were diesel punk before there was diesel punk. Very cool. So I got, I got a question for you, Daisy. In the yes, book, <clears throat> does it talk at all about how Marston reacted to the way Wonder Woman was written in the Justice League comic book? Oh, it does. Let me... Uh... Let me see if I can get to that part, because I don't think he was very pleased with what they did with her. <laughs> yeah, so for fans who don't know, um, you know, here he creates this strong, independent hero, um, and she becomes popular. She's added to the Justice League comic and is relegated immediately, Larry, to being the Justice League's sec secretary. Oh, and no. she never gets to go on adventures with them either. Oh, please. In fact, there's one, there's one story they talk about where she 
rounds up the girlfriends of the other members of the Justice League and says, well, you know what, they're always leaving us alone. Let's go out and have an adventure of our own. They go out and they're just about instantly kidnapped and have to be rescued by the guys. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, you might say uh, he's a little ahead of his time, but uh, (laughs) the time just needed to catch up with him. And thanks to Wonder Woman, we uh, we got uh, Agent Peggy Carter. Oh, bless Wonder Woman! <laughs> and we'll have a new Diesel Punk Standard yes. film coming out next year. So, oh really? About what that. film? What film's coming out next year again? Wonder Woman. Yeah. Oh, yes. 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 There's a Wonder Woman <laughs> film coming out next. There's so much stuff coming out lately that I I got to keep it all I got to keep it all straight. But yeah, I'm excited about uh about the film because that trailer looks like it has a little bit of everything I like. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, well guys, the uh the next two books I'm looking at are of course uh Boardwalk Empire, the which, of course, the TV series was based on. The Birth, High Times, and Corruption of Atlantic City. And I've also got Tinseltown, Murder, Morphine, and Madness at the Dawn of Hollywood. And then I know um, Charles is being nice enough to send me a copy of uh, the book Dragonfly, which, uh, when I yep. when I get that, that's instantly going to the top of the pile. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You'll love it. Oh, Oh, you've read it. Yeah, it's on my Kindle. So, uh, thank you, Daisy, for that excellent uh, book review. Well, you're quite welcome. I can't wait to join you again for the next time on uh, Fine Literature with Daisy O'Dare. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. That's great. So, uh, speaking of a lot coming out, Larry, mm-hmm. that's my segue back to you. Very good. Tell you what, we got some really great move sounding movies that are coming out here soon uh some big stars um a new Ben Affleck movie uh set during the 1920s uh looks like he's uh, involved in organized crime is titled Live by Night and the trailers they look pretty cool i mean the cinematography looks beautiful um, and, uh, that looks like that's going to be a lot of fun. We also have another movie. You told me about this one, Johnny. You mentioned this earlier. Uh, directed by Mel Gibson. Yeah. Yeah. Hacksaw Ridge? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, this looks like a phenomenal... I saw a, uh, an extended short about it. Uh, it's a true story. Um, a, a doctor from the Midwest uh, volunteers to uh, serve uh, overseas in World War II, but he's a uh, he's a devout uh, Christian pacifist. Very yeah. So yeah, it looks like a phenomenal film, and um, it's uh, already got some uh, Oscar buzz on it. Really? Yeah. Well, very cool. Good to see, uh, you know, Mel Gibson made a really good, uh, cool diesel era film. Gallipoli was his first big movie, 
uh, I believe it was before Mad Max. Um, Gallipoli, of course, was placed in World War One, and that was a great movie. Hmm. Yep, yep, yep. One of my favorites. Cool. Um, we have a new television show in the works. Yeah, Wild Cards. Uh, mm-hmm. George R. R. Martin um, was the uh, one of the authors and the editor of that series, and um, it's in development for TV. And from what I understand, um, I've not read the series. It's it's you know pretty old, not old, but it is one of his earlier works. Um, but uh, people are saying that. Uh, the wild card series is even better than Game of Thrones. Wow. Uh, I just got the book uh, a few days ago. Uh, another benefit of Amazon Prime, I got it like next day delivery. Um, You're just going to keep rubbing that in our face, aren't you? <laughs> I love it. Love it. Um, but uh, I've started, it's very diesel punk. Uh, it starts out in 46. And uh, there's a uh, character named Jet Boy who flies a souped-up jet during World War II. Um, it's really, really good. So I started out as really quite good, and I look forward to seeing it made into a TV show. Charles, have you read the Wild Card series? No, I haven't. Um, I'm looking at um, George R. R. Martin's online um, uh, Website while while we're talking here, I did hear about it. I I, I understand what it's about, and uh, I'm looking forward to it too. Yeah, very very cool. It's what nice to be able to dis- discover diesel punk that you didn't know existed because it's really kind of hard. There's not a lot of literature out there, you know, in the diesel we, era. Yeah, you know, we we've talked about I I talk about that in uh, in my panels at cons quite a bit. That for the most part. I see diesel punk as mostly a visual medium. There is some literature, but uh, right. it's really more visual than anything. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's. Uh, I, I'm. This may be a good time to to say it, but I'm actually going to be talking on retrofuturism and and re- what I call retro punk fiction, as opposed to cyberpunk, which is future fiction, uh, at the Florida Writers Convention in Orlando. In October, it's actually going to be on October 22nd, I talk. And what I'm trying to do is actually encourage writers to start writing diesel punk. Um, I'm going to cover steampunk as well, and I'm going to explain, you know, terminology there that people are often confused, like what's Tesla punk, what's deco punk, how does it fit in the timeline? I'm going to try to explain that as well. But focusing mainly on giving writers an idea of how, how to write retrofuturism because as you say it's very visual I get a lot of visual inspiration not only from period dramas like we talked about where you know World War II recreation um, period dramas um, but also from the superhero movies right because we know Captain America's diesel punk Wonder Woman's coming out going to be set in in the, the uh, World War One era so I'm trying to get people to think of retrofuturism to, in order to write it and it's nice to find it's like a, it's like a lost treasure here. This wild cards, right? It's George yeah. R. R. Martin is one of the. Cla- I mean, I think he wrote it at a point when he wasn't well known. That's right. That's right. 
one of his earlier works. So uh should be interesting. Yeah. Larry, what else have you discovered? Well, um, one thing before we get to the topic we were really planning on talking about tonight, uh, 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 last Saturday, September the 10th, marked the 80th anniversary of the assassination of Huey Long. Uh, And I know most of our fans are history buffs, like we are. And, uh, you know, Huey Long was one of the most colorful individuals uh, in the West, of, in America, in the 1930s. And this might be some kind of scary similarities between Huey Long and uh, some of the politics happening today. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of good resources online. There's a Huey Long uh, Society that has a really cool website. Um, so, look them up, learn a, bit, a little bit about Huey Long, and, uh, but this, September 10th, 1935, he was uh, assassinated by a, the relative of a, one of his political opponents. And uh, refresh all of our memories, because it's been a long time since I took U.S. history, Larry. Um, Huey Long was, a, was one of the uh, bosses. Was it? No, no, Huey Long was a Louisiana governor. Ah, uh, 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 okay, okay. Yeah, he rose up. Uh, he was a uh, he, he he tried to portray himself as being raised poor. He was he wasn't rich, but he certainly wasn't poor. Um, he always had grand ambitions. He told his girlfriend before he even became uh, a uh, his first won his first election. I'm going to be president someday. And is uh, is he is he the is he the governor that um, the movie Blaze was based on? No. Um, King F- he was known as the Kingfish. Um, and I've gone a blank. There was a famous play based on him. Um, I don't think Blaze was based on him. No. I don't think she was. He was pretty clean in that sense. Clean cut. Uh, he rose up as a as a railroad commissioner to start with, and then he became governor, some say dictator of Louisiana, and then moved on to become a senator, and uh, he, his slogan was, uh, every man a king. And he was very popular, so progressive, very populous. Um, was he corrupt? Well, you know, a corrupt Louisiana politician is a redundant statement, especially during the 30s. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah. Now, was uh, was was the character of uh, Pappy O'Daniel from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou based on him? Pappy O'Daniel, his actual name was even taken from the governor of Texas. Oh, it, it was Texas, okay. It was Texas. Um, so, no, I see what, I mean, there's a lot of historical ones. All the King's Men. That was the movie. All the King's Men. Oh, uh, the, yeah, okay. The, the writer, I did see where some have said that the writer denied that it was based on Louis, uh, uh, Huey Long. <laughs> Chances are really good it wasn't. It was, I mean, based on Huey Long. Um, like I said, he was called the Kingfisher. Uh, he was very intriguing, very much ahead of his time. 
he was one of the few Southerners that was not into race baiting. Um, uh, he's still considered one of the most popular uh, politicians in Louisiana by people today. Yeah. Uh, so, very interesting person. I do recommend uh, do uh, research a little bit about him, learn about him. There's a lot of good stuff online, lots of good books. Uh, in fact, I'm reading one right now about him and uh, Father Coughlin called Voices of Protest. So, um, I highly recommend learning a little bit about the man, and especially in this uh, year of uh, national politics. Very interesting. You know, nothing. there's nothing new under the sun. No, I agree. Yeah. Speaking of nothing new under the sun, but at the same time completely yeah. new, we wanted to uh, talk retrofuturism tonight. And, Larry, the, the, the conversation or, or the, the impetus for this conversation was sparked by, I think, something that, that I don't want to say you've taken issue with me on, but, um, you know, I've been describing diesel punk to a lot of people as the retrofuturism of the 1920s through the 1940s. And, uh, you know, Qualifying that with, you know, retrofuturism sees the future of tomorrow through yesterday's eyes. And I know a lot of people have really liked that description. Um, I think, Charles, you, you commented yep. one time that you liked that a lot. Yep. Um, That's my definition, too. Yeah, but, uh, Larry, you, you had some differences of opinion on that. Well... I think we I think it's retrofuturism as you describe it uh, of 1920s 30s, and 40s is an, an important element found within diesel punk. Uh, I think if we limit it to that then we lose so much of what we already say is diesel punk. I don't think we can keep uh, who framed Roger Rabbit. I don't think we can keep uh, Indiana Jones. Well, you know, I know most people, they wrap up fantasy and horror and sci-fi all in one big uh, big package, but it's not retrofuturism in Indiana Jones. Um, we lose so much. We lose a lot of fiction. We lose uh, Black City Saint, in which a... Uh, St. George of St. George the Dragon is running around Chicago, uh, uh, Harry Dresden style. Um, so we lose all of that if we limit it to retrofuturism. I mean, uh, we're now yeah, kind of limited to very few productions and very few books. Yeah, Larry, I, I, I mean, uh, you mentioned Indiana Jones. I think it's, it's a very familiar movie to everybody. Um, and I, I see that as retrofuturistic from this perspective. And that is that what you're creating, because, because what you're trying to convey in retrofuturism is the, the vi- what I call the vibe of the era, the aesthetics of the era, okay. in today's minds, um, okay. that Indiana Jones is really a recreation of those old-time 
uh, adventures, the Saturday morning adventures that the kids used to go to see, whether it was uh, Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon or or um, any of the adventures that, uh, I mean, you know, it, it just had that element of, of uh, adventurism from, from the 1930s early movie genres. And um, so that's what's happened. And then what, what, what makes it punk is that you also have an element of the fantastic in it, right? Um, so you've got, you've got the elements of the fantastic come into diesel punk and steampunk and other punk fiction as well. And an element of the fantastic is something like, for example, the, um, in the Raiders of the Lost Ark is the supernatural um, aspects of the Ark, right? Um, so you have an adventure, which is very a period, right? I mean, up until a certain point, you could just look at it as being a period piece, like we talked about with the ones that are, you know, historically, um, you know, trying to be historically accurate. And then all of a sudden, this the punk is the twist in creating either weird, introducing weird science or the supernatural or something horrific or some something alternative. Um, you know, there's um. Let me just say something else about retrofuturism. It's mm-hmm. part of the definition, and it's and it's it's something that goes to to writers, but it may also apply, you know, in this discussion for the other creative arts, because I define diesel punk not in terms of writing, but in as as in terms of creativity, artistic creativity it could be film, it could be um, you know uh, you know people who do costume design, they do they do um, industrial design and craft work and, and so on. So and this is called perception bias. And we are all we are all influenced by it, but writers have this problem of perception bias. And what it is is our knowledge of the past, you know, psychologists say that our value systems are ingrained by the time we're about eight or ten years old. So whatever our whether you believe in nurture or nature, genetics or, or environment, it doesn't really matter, but by about ten years old, your value system's pretty well set for life. And unless you have a significant emotional event, it's not going to change. And so it molds not just your values of yourself and how you interact, but also how you see other people. So as you grow up, you view other people through this lens, if you wish, of your perception. And then the second thing that happens, so that's the perception, what I call the knowledge of the past. It's what you remember, what you remember your values are, how you grew up. And then there's a perception of the present, and the perception of the present is what is our current reality? As of right now, look around you. You know, where are you? Where do you live? What's your community? Who are you with? Who, what are your relationships? What are your family? What's, what's the econ- economy like for you particularly? What's the politics like for you particularly? That is, that is your reality of the present. And what it does is influences your views of the future and your mood. So if you are feeling optimistic, you have an optimistic view of the future. And if you feel pessimistic today, you have a pessimistic view of the future. So if you have those two concepts in mind about perception bias, what retrofuturism is, is going back in time, back to whatever era you're going to talk about, whether it's a diesel era or a steam era, and adopting the realities of that period of time in order to look to the future. And that's my definition of retrofuturism. It's basically 
to be able to project to others the future as those in the past area might have seen it, or to convey to others how that vibe would look in a future imaginary world. Some of the best diesel punk that I've read is actually in future worlds. It's not oh, in the past, it's in future worlds. And it's still retrofuturism because what happens there is, when you talk about the perception bias, for example, and I'm writing in World War II, okay? And what you've got to do is you've got to recognize, uh, as, uh, uh, as Daisy came out earlier and said, that the role of women was entirely different than it is today. And so now you've got to start to do your homework as an author to figure that out and say, well, how do... How are people viewed, how are women viewed by men, but how are, how do women view themselves? And how do they, how do, what social restrictions do they have? And that's where we, we love Agent Carter so much because it just absolutely plays to that like an orchestra. It's like the symphony of the role of women, uh, in, in a diesel era. It's just per- perfect. But there's other things as well. And in, in some writing that I'm doing now for a second novel in diesel punk, I'm actually researching uh, race relations. Um, I'm researching um, the the role of of, uh, fascism in America, not in Europe, but in America, because there were fascist parties in America. And what were they? Because I want to write about it. I want to understand it. And that is retrofuturistic, because what I'm doing is I'm taking my perception of today, setting it aside. I'm trying to take my value system and judgments of today and set those aside and then sort of like do a little time travel hop into, you know, a rally in Madison Square Garden that actually did occur that was as important to the fascist movement as a rally in Nuremberg or in Rome. So that's part of it, you know, and um, I don't view, and I don't view Indiana Jones to be uh, anything but retrofuturistic. Well, I think the problem is... I hear you mixing futurism with punk and punk kind of in the same breath. You know, looking at some of the subject, you know, one of the, in the book, Oxford University, put up by Oxford University Press, the Oxford Handbook of Science Fiction, they give what is pretty much considered the, the standard view of futurism. Uh, but that's not science- right for futurism. Science spent on anticipating what will come. I, th- come. I think you kind of taking your own definition, and I don't hear the word future anywhere in anything you said right there. And they mention that retrofuturism is remembering of that remembrance of that anticipation. Um, no, well, wait a minute. My, my, here's my definition. Is I'm going to actually um, is my own definition. And by the way, and I think it's important for the listeners to realize that there is no definition of diesel punk or steampunk that anybody can agree to that I know of. And I've done a lot of research trying to figure out, like, what is it? Because if you want to talk about it, you have to go to, even the dictionary definitions are pretty lame. Here's my definition. The That's retrofuturist- true, by the way. Yeah. The retrofuturistic themes and aesthetics reflecting the politics, society, culture, and technology from whatever period you wish, choose it, steam or diesel or Tesla or whatever, expressed in creative form in order to project to others the future as those in this past era might have seen it or to convey to others how this era's vibe would look like in a future imaginary world. 
I have no problem with that, but Indiana Jones there right there doesn't fit that definition you just gave. Well, it, it does, because what it does is it projects to others that the future that we're talking about there is is the... It's the potential it's future right. of global domination. Right. It, what, huh? what, it, what it is, what, what Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark was, is a battle between good and evil. And if you think about going back to the 1930s and you're going to the Saturday morning cinema, right, you can't divorce yourself from the fact that the newspaper you picked up in the morning or delivered as a young boy or girl you delivered had the headlines that said, you know, um, Germany invades Czechoslovakia or uh, the Japanese Pearl Harbor, whatever the deal was. So you take that reality of, today, of that today and you walk into that cinema, and then all of a sudden you're seeing a guy fighting the Nazis uh, with this supernatural event occurring, okay? So the punk element, that when I look at punk, I look at two definitions as a writer, and it, it may be that it's different for other create, creative artists, but for me the punk element comes in two things. First thing is the introduction of something fantastic, right? Something de- of wonder, Something that is, you have to make and create a plausible explanation to let the reader buy into the fact that maybe supernatural things occur and maybe they're in that arc there's energy that the Nazis can use, right? And the second thing is to look at um, rebellion, right? So punk is obviously rebellious, off-center, uh, counterculture type of thing. So when you look at Raiders of the Lost Ark, what you're looking at is you're looking at a classic 1930s adventure recreated in the eyes of, from the eyes of someone today, Steven Spielberg. He's the, retro, he's the retrofuturist. He's going back and saying, I want to create the vibe of the past and show you what people in that past would have looked like, would have, would have thought about, you know, are the Nazis, are they developing super weapons based on supernatural occult uh, religious objects? Is that what they're doing? That's very, to me, very retrofuturistic. I mean, that's my opinion. Yeah, okay. Uh, I think we're going to have a difference. Because you keep switching to punk. I, I, I agree completely that it's diesel punk. I agree with your definition of punk very much so. We're very much on the same page. But I think the Futurist Society and similar groups, and these are not, text, these are not, diesel, these are not dictionary definitions that I just, like the group I just mentioned, the Futurist Society, would have a problem maybe and uh, with your definition of of uh, okay well let's 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 take another example let's take another example because it's a really good one and, and it's, it's it's interesting for me to entertain this debate because this is a debate I'm going to have with writers at the Florida conference I'm going to um, men in the high castle how would you how would you classify men in the high castle I, or just for the listeners it's uh, Philip K Dick's very famous uh, story that's now an Amazon uh, TV series, uh, um, which says a very simple what if. What if the Nazis and Japanese won the war, and what if America had been occupied by both of them? And, and we're talking now about a future that never occurred. Uh, we, we look at elements there of cities, um, technology like supersonic travel. Or they're all there. Um, how would you characterize that? Is that diesel pump? Well, except very much diesel punk. Okay. Uh, there's no doubt about that in my mind. 
Okay. Um, but it's but it's not retrofuturism in the sense that uh, you're you in, in sense of the of the word of how the past viewed the future uh, or a reimagining of that. Um, I would not. I mean, that's okay. Th- this is no futurism in that, in the sense of looking towards the future. In that sense, in fact, the book was written in the in the sixties. At that time, it was set contemporary. It says an alternative universe. Mm, yeah, it was a little post contemporary, a little bit. It was like sixty three. Yeah, I believe, it's about ten years. around sixty three. Post contemporary, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was in, right. in our contemporary, not in the sense right. that it was set oh, in the forties. Yeah. It's contemporary in the sense that it's post diesel era. Right. 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 Well, um, here's 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 the thing that 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 I do because when you write it, when you write it, you have to be very aware of what you're doing. But the first thing you've got to do is be aware of what the people in that era, what their future, what they thought their future might be. And so, if you go into like Man in the High Castle, for example, you don't see a lot of the futurists of the 1960s. The Isaac Asimovs, the, you know, you don't see robots, you don't see computers because they didn't think of it that way. You see advanced aircraft because the Nazis had advanced aircraft. They invented jet power in, in terms of, at least in, in terms of weaponry and rocketry. And so you see a little bit of that. You just have kind of a hint of it. But you don't see cities that are futuristic in the sense that they don't have, you know, massive great, um, monorail systems and robotics and computers because the people in that era never even imagined that was possible. And so um, I, I, still, I still think it's very retrofuturistic. Are we still talking about the novel Man in the High Castle? Yes. Okay, that was it. Well, yeah, but Phil K. Dick tried to keep it very, uh, very grounded. Right. Uh, and, and he didn't expand the technology very much. He just right. kind of expanded on, well, the Nazis, they love... Rockets, so and that's why in the TV show I like what they did. They make it basically look like the Concord. Right, right. Uh, so uh, he didn't give them high tech. He just kind of moved it right. a little bit to what he thought might be in the future. You know, a rocket plane. They thought probably would have been just ten, twenty years off, and he's probably you know we're close to it today with uh, ramp, you know scramjet technology and all. And um, so he just kind of kept it grounded, threw in a little something that sounded Nazi-ish, and, uh, which basically they called it a rocket plane. It was a Concorde, a supersonic airliner. Uh, he wasn't focusing on that. He was focused on how, why, right. how right then that day could be different. Right. And that's because, that's because as a writer, what he's doing, what I'm going to talk about uh, – to, to my audience is is a dial. If you can imagine a, a little volume knob on like a an amplifier, okay, that has a zero setting and a ten setting, a gain. Okay. And let's say zero is reality, as absolute reality. There's no change in the rules of science, or there's no change in history. It is what it was, um, and then you start to turn that dial. And, and what you've got with Man in the High Castle is a very low setting, which is essentially alternative history. The only thing you've changed is an outcome. 
And what you've then done is answered the what-if questions as an author. What if the Nazis won? What if they ruled America? That's the what-if question. Now, as you turn that dial, you go through a series of what I call fantastic disturbances. And the first one is a single fantastic disturbance. And that, what that means is, and, and the classic example of that is, is vampires. The original vampire story was Dracula. You had, you had everything was real. The whole setting, the place setting in London and, and, and everything was real. The only thing that was different was this one character who happened to have this sort of quote-unquote power. Um, he was a vampire. There wasn't any other vampires. There was just the one. Now, nowadays, you couldn't do a vampire movie with only one vampire. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be, <laughs> wouldn't be accepted um, for the audience. But back then, one was enough. That's a single disturbance. Now you ratchet it up a little bit more, and you get into multiple disturbances. Now let's think about Captain America: The First Avenger. Okay, who's your villain then? Well, it's this guy called the Red Skull. And what's he doing? He's got all kinds of weird science. Like, he's got weird science, you know, on steroids. He's got, if they had steroids back then, and uh, on meth, because they did. They used meth. But, um, so what, what you now have is you've now got the character, the science is weird. Then all of a sudden you're into retrofuturistic aircraft, like the big bomber and the flying bombs. And you've also got the, the hero, Captain America with supernatural powers that are biologically infused through injection and and so on and so forth. So you can see where we're going with it. And retrofuturism just takes that one little dial turn extra and it basically says, I want you to change your perception of the future. So all of that applies. So you can have diesel punk down at the low end of the man in the high castle is that very one little tiny thing. Everything's realistic except one thing, change in history. Or you can have a single character that changes. Or you can dial it up and really go crazy with, you know, something like Sky Captain and the, and, uh, and the World of Tomorrow as an example. Or Dark City. Those are super, super dialed up fantasy science fiction blended together. And then retrofuturism basically says, just hold on a second here. In order to make it diesel punk and not futurism, you've got to start to look through the lens of the people in the past. That's how I, that's how I scale it. I call it the spectrum of the fantastic. Yeah, and <clears throat> this, first of all, this conversation is amazing. This is fantastic stuff. <laughs> and <clears throat> I just want to add, you know, Larry, you, you said... You didn't see the futurism in Indiana Jones or Man in the High Castle. And I would, well, I would suggest that the futurism is the potential future that results from the events in those stories. That's a painful stretch. I mean, we're completely, I mean, at least, you know, the way we've used punk and the way I've used it is consistent all the way back to Shakespeare. Uh, when he first used the word in the English language. Uh, whereas, now, this is a, comp- it's like we're, we're stretching the word, you know, the way to use genre punk, and now there's every little type of genre punk out there. Um, it, it's like we're stretching this word into something that 
has no connection whatsoever linguistically with how it's used. Um, well, but yeah, that's, but kind the, uh, that's kind of but the. That's kind of the word uh, retro. Would point. you put yeah, retro? Retro into retro, it. Retro, yeah, uh, that's fine. Change. But the future, futurism, almost all. Uh, I, no, I won't say always. Almost always involves predictions about the future. Now, I'm cool with how the past would see the future. That's what uh, we kind of do with Sky Captain the World Tomorrow. We recreate how they, you know, that all right. the art, all the look of the robots, the rocket, all that is how they would have saw giant robots, how they would have saw a rocket ship. Uh, that's what made it retro future. Uh, is how they would have saw it. The technology in Captain America. That's how they saw a giant airplane or how they would have seen this text. And if you look at the tech in, uh, Agent Carter, that was retro future. It's modern technology as envisioned by them. But Indiana Jones is, it's not looking to the future. It's not reimagining how the future might be. It's um, it's it's fantasy, pure fantasy, kind of like that book Black City Saint that I just recently read of Saint George and uh, running around in 20th century and 1920s Chicago. Uh, there's no future in ism in that. The word futurism or futurology is sometimes is referred to. I, I see where, your but point. In the future, it's just not there. Yeah. So what you're basically saying is what you're basically saying is that this, this, is, this is where we, we kind of go into I, I go into the Flash Gordon Buck Rogers uh, mode, okay? Because I try to imagine myself walking into that cinema as a you know twelve year eleven twelve year old boy just finished delivering his papers in the 1930s early 40s, and I'm sitting down to watch Flash Gordon. And what you're saying is there's not enough "Quote unquote Flash Gordon in Indiana Jones. It's it's yeah, it's an adventure, but you know the fact that these Nazis have these this occult stuff and going on is really not futuristic because Flash Gordon is futuristic. It's how they imagine space travel to be and and what other races in in space would be if they found them. You know the the first contact, right? The space this is space opera of that era. So, so the fact that there's nothing more in that than an occult uh, device, right, at the end of the movie, the Ark, the Covenant, that doesn't qualify it. And yet, the very, very small change, if you think about alternative history and what I do, my novel Dragonfly has everything. I mean, it's literally got everything. Uh, uh, alternate science, alternate... Um, you know, chemistry, biology, it's even an alternate history. And I take it to a point and I change history. Um, I change it several different ways. And once you do that as an author, you have to start, it, it kind of takes over because you sort of say, oh shit, you know, where, where, do, where does it go from here? Now that I've not, you know, if Nazi Germany didn't invade Russia, what are the consequences of that? So what Phil K. Dick did was he, he did that one little change. He said, we lose that we didn't win. And yet that's diesel punk and Indiana Jones is not. And I'm no, no, still Indiana Jones is very diesel punk. Why did you say it wasn't... It's not futurist, though. 
Okay. Uh, because so retro, yeah, but something futurism. Punk yeah, but 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 wait a minute, Larry. It's not futurism. It's retrofuturism. And and you know that's. Absolutely. I, I tell you what. I tell you what. Is is cyberpunk retrofuturistic, or is biopunk retrofuturistic? But well, it's missing the retro. In most exactly. cases, it's cyber. It's but futuristic. I'm cool with it being. It's retro. futuristic, not retrofuturistic, and that's what the difference is. See, to me. To me, that's what the difference is. Futurism, retrofuturism doesn't have to be futurism just because it's got futurism in the word. That's my point. It redefines itself. Retrofuturism redefines itself. It redefines itself because if I'm writing futuristically, and I I do, I am writing futuristically. I have a, I have a um, several futuristic things that have been published just recently. And I'm writing series of um, futuristic things. I'm going to be writing a, a space opera. And I know what futurism is because it's world building in the future. But remember what I said about perception bias? When, when I'm writing the future, when I'm writing space opera, right, if I wanted to create my own version of Star Wars or Star Trek, what am I doing? What am I doing is I'm taking today's perception of what technology I know today. I know computers have been invented. I know people um, have space stations orbiting the Earth, and they visited the moon. And I know all that. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to crank up my creative juices to the point where I'm going to extrapolate those knowns and add some other unknowns and maybe change science in the future just a little bit so that I can have maybe genetically modified something or others that... That uh, and, and certain technologies of propulsion, that's futurism. I get that. I I get that all day long. But retrofuturism doesn't have to have that uh, that purity of that fu- of the future because what happens in retrofuturism is you you set your perception bias from today aside. It's almost like you can take something out of your brain and just kind of put it on the table and walk away. Walk away, and then you pick up. It's like a ticket. It's like it's like the little the people that go to Hogwarts by walking through a wall. Oh my God, I, I can't walk through a wall. It's a solid wall. And so what we're doing now is we're saying the retrofuturists in the room. That's probably me and Johnny. We're saying to you, Larry, Larry, take her hand, buddy. Walk through that wall because <laughs> you're setting aside that perception bias that you have today. You have that. And you can set it aside, and now you're going to take that other different perception with you on your journey. Uh, Wow! This is awesome. No, 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 no. no, And that redefines. You you talked all around. That redefines it. The the problem is in the hold on in the retro futurism is a two part word. Retro futurism is two. That's what I disagree with. See, that's what I disagree with. Fundamentally. Yes, I know, but... but Wait, hey, hey, guys, hold on, hold on, hold on. But submarine is two-part word. Let's let's set the table here just a minute. Um, Charles, if you haven't discovered by now, Larry is very literal about entomology of words. Well, that's fine. Mm. It's very important, (laughs) because we're going to be called on the carpet. When you stand up before anybody and you try what you're doing here... Charles, they're going to rip you to shreds. No, uh, because they're, they're, they're going to look at the, they're going to look at the etymology of the word, and they're going to take those two parts, retro, futurism, which oftentimes is hyphenated, um, 
and they're going to look at the two parts and going to say, well, we get the retro, and uh, you've given us some good examples of the of right. Uh, what of you're how, saying, uh, you're going to have a problem though with where's the future in some of the parts that right. you've talked about. Because 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 the, the the thing about it is is this it's the, it's the wonder and the fantastic. Okay, if if, if you're writing thing, if you there's a really good book called Worlds of Wonder. And Worlds of Wonder is uh, for to teach you how to write science fiction and fantasy, and it talks about wonder. And uh, I think Johnny is tired of me talking about plausibility because every time when we were doing the Agent Carter roundtable, right, Johnny, I, you had to pass the Charles Cornell plausibility test. If I saw something in the series that suspended belief, I pointed it out. I said I've suspended belief, and it's because when you wonder about something in the future. Right when you wonder, what you're trying to do is you're trying to accept the whatever it is is being presented to you as being real in in something that you know today is not real. Like we know today that 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 um, uh, the Nazis didn't win the war, the Japanese did not win World War Two. We know that, but we accept the fact that they did from the very beginning. Otherwise. We wouldn't. We watch ten or fifteen minutes of Man in the High Castle and turn it off because it's like, what is this guy trying to do? What is he trying to portray here? This is impossible. It didn't happen that way. What's he doing? Is the guy insane? And so what you've done is that very first time you see those Nazi flags on a New York skyscraper, or the Japanese patrolling the streets in in San Francisco in Man in the High Castle, you and then you accept that that's possible. You are then wondering about the future as those in the past would have seen it, and that's my point with Indiana Jones: is that is that that little kid in the 1930s, if he watched Indiana Jones, he would accept the plausibility of that because he if he accepted Flash Gordon, he would accept Indiana Jones. That's what makes it. Retrofuturistic. So, wait, so what is the futurism component in retrofuturism? I'm still that, not picking up on the futurism element to this. Well, it's the wonder. It, it's the wonder when did of futurism get equated with wonder. Well, that's Conan the Barbarian. No, no. Well, yeah, but listen, that's fantasy. Fant- fantasy and science fiction is based on wonder. If you don't have wonder and if you don't have plausibility, you lose your reader. And by inference, if you're doing it in a medium on the screen, in the big screen, you would lose your viewer, your audience. You have to have that. And when you suspend, so it's another thing. What, what I do, I'm a, a very terrible person when it comes to to going to the movies. I love movies, but I can tell you right now that if there's some element in there that's that's just, I suspend belief in one of the, one of the things that a real simple example when some guy falls into uh, water and it comes out dry as soon as that happens I suspend belief and so this is the kind of thing that you're looking for in in your literature and I think that it's the creation of wonder so when that little kid is wondering is it possible that the Nazis could actually Generate an energy field out of a religious object. I wonder, is that possible? Then that is that wonder element to me is futuristic, and it may not fit your futuristic perception today. But I go back and I say, 
would that little kid have wondered that if he was in a 1930s, 1940s cinema? And, and let, let me throw this in there just as an extra fly in the ointment. Because I, I'm, I tend to agree with Charles, uh, Larry, and I see where you, where you take issue. And I would say that the futurism that you're looking for, it, you're, you're looking at a literal definition of futurism, and in retrofuturism, it's not a literal Right. Uh, not a literal expression of the It's a new word. Future. Yeah, it's a it new is, word. It's not a combination. It it's a new word. That's right. And and the futurism to me and, and this this I came to this understanding as an author myself, as as a writer. The futurism happens when you change something that was historically true. And from that point the future has changed. Whether you explore that new future or not, just the fact that you've introduced a change to true real-world history, you have created a new point for a, for a new future to develop. So, in Indiana Jones, when you introduce the mystic energy from the Ark of the Covenant, which is fantasy, it's science fiction, at that moment, you have created a new future. Right. That's my point, too. It's the word no, word. Larry, let, let me get your argument. Let me get, because I think we're sort of like going to agree to disagree on this, which is fine, and our, our listeners can, can decide for themselves. But let me ask you this, because I, I don't have the answer to this myself. Is Mad Max Fury Road diesel pump? No, I've never considered it diesel punk. Okay, is it retrofuturistic? That I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, I don't see the retro in it. Uh, whether it's futuristic, set in the future, so I guess it is futuristic. Uh, is it? But is it retro futurism, as in there is a something of the past being right. attached to the future reimagined and? No, not that. Well, I've seen. I've I haven't seen, seen the movie yet, yeah, uh, but the movie. what I have seen of the excerpts and the sets and the uh, vehicles, I'd say no. Okay. I did some. I know they've said I've seen a few photos of the cars, and they do kind of have kind of a, you know, that some of them will look old by our standards. Uh, do they look like forty-ish or fifty-ish age cars? Yeah, but. <laughs> Retro futurism. Well, it's interesting because we we had this discussion at a writer circle, um, and and we came to the conclusion a bunch of writers that just kind of basically sort of had group think. Um, we came to the conclusion it was post apocalyptic and it was not not retro futuristic. However, I would agree however, with that, and I would I would I would I would. You know, and Johnny, you've probably seen it. Dial yourself back for a sec, and and Larry, if you've not seen it, watch for this. There is an element of retrofuturism, and it occurs when the bad guy, and I can't remember the guy's name, he has this weird-looking mask with the hoses coming out of it. Uh, I've seen the, fit, fit, the yeah. clips. Um. When when he when he speaks. He's there's this sort of cliff face, right? And they're carved into cliff faces. These caverns with all these sort of zombie-esque kind of 
creatures of, uh, that, that live in these caves, working machinery. And then he comes out onto this podium with this loudspeaker system. And down below, there's this multitude of, you know, basically poverty-stricken people. And he speaks to them. And to me, that was retrofuturistic. Because oh. in the other... I'll tell you. And the other part of my definition is to convey to others how this era's vibe, the era of the 1930s and 40s, how that vibe would look in a future imaginary world. And that scene was retrofuturistic. I'm not saying that Mad Max was. I don't agree that it is. But that scene was because it depicted a dictator of the 1930s speaking to the, the oppressed crowds of his basic totalitarian society. It's very retrofuturistic. If you look at that and you substitute Mussolini or Hitler uh, in that podium and, you, and the, the, the size and scale of that cliff face is very Nuremberg-ish, very much like the, the great um, spectacles that they would create to energize the crowd around this, this dictator. Very, and that, to me, is is what you're looking for in in retrofuturism. Because, for example, one of my one of my friends, uh, writer friends, his name's Bard Constantine. And for those of you who are listening, if you have, if you have not read Bard Constantine, he is a master author. He, his writing is very very good, and he is he's written several. Uh, uh, books in what's called the, the Troubleshooter series about a detective called Mick, a uh, private eye, called um, Mick Trouble, and it's set in the future. It's set in a future world. There are robots and there are flying cars and, and those kinds of things, but they're all retro, right? They're all designed around, like like if you can imagine a Duesenberg flying, it was like the flying car that was in Agent Carter that, that Howard Stark created, that kind of car. And he's created an entire world of gangsters. He's got gangsterism in there. He's got the language in there of the 1930s and uh, the speakeasies and all these other kinds of things. But it's set in a post-apocalyptic world called the Havens, um, in which some cataclysms occurred to man and, and, and the world's changed. But now he's portraying the future as people in the past would have seen it because of the elements of the aesthetics that are involved. Now, that's a great example to me of retro future. And by the way, yes, I agree. Charles and I will say we agree 100% on Bard's work. Uh, he's an excellent writer. He's a very neat guy, great blogger. You have to read his blog. Yeah, I do. And was a guest on this show. Yeah, I really, he's fantastic. Now, and that is a great example, I agree, of retro futurism. Uh, that I have no problem with. I guess my point being is that um, you're trying to squeeze in some other stuff. You know, you're taking that round hole and you've got the square peg, and you say, Larry, I can make this fit. Just give me a big enough hammer, and I'll <laughs> whack this into that hole, and it'll fit. And you know what? Yeah, if you whack it really hard, yeah. but you're not going to change the fact that you're still trying to hammer in a square peg into a round hole. And that's what you're doing with this rather torturous <laughs> redefinition. <laughs> <laughs> you, you gave a good example. In fact, one of the things we wanted to talk about was some examples of retrofuturism. You just gave a fantastic example of retrofuturism as opposed to... Um, and I again, think, I, we're not going to agree on Indiana Jones. Well, and, uh, right, and, 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 oh, I'm going to... 
We're going to agree to disagree on that one. Yeah, we're going to disagree on that one. Well, and I'm going to make Larry's head hurt right now. As only Johnny could do. (laughs) I'm going to say that I believe that all diesel punk is retrofuturism, but not all retrofuturism is diesel punk. You know, I came out of my bunker for that one, but... uh, That's that's correct, because... Steampunk is wait, 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 guys, 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 guys. Daisy's, Daisy's, Daisy's jumping in here. Daisy. Well, I mean, I've, Charles and Larry have been on fire, and I didn't want to, you know. Uh, <laughs> Go for it. But I was just going to say, Johnny, I came out of my bunker when you started talking, but then you opened that can of worms, and I, I better uh, dive back down again. Fire in the hole, as they say. <laughs> well, I do think that all diesel era style, theme, retrofuturism, is diesel punk. Uh, he just gave a great example, the troubleshooter, Trolls did. Um, but not all diesel punk is diesel era style retrofuturism. Larry, uh, can I ask you a question? Can I ask you yeah. a question? Does all of your definition of retrofuturism has to happen in the future? No. It can be a re- it can be the past reimagining future okay. or how the past right. imagined the future would be. But wait a minute. Okay. A child sitting watching a had let's say Indiana Jones been made in the nineteen thirties, which is when it was kind of set and the whole uh, serial theme was placed. He wouldn't be thinking, "Wow, my future involves a, 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 a the Ark of the Covenant." Uh, there was no future, even though art, by the way, was not futuristic. The art was, you know, ancient biblical fantasy uh, art, artifact. So Supernatural. The, yeah. the spirits that came out right. and the right. lightning of God that blew up everybody and blow up everybody's heads and stuff like that. That was just, he'd say, no, not this Sunday school. This is stuff I heard that happened 5,000, 4,000 years ago. Uh, there was no, just, there was no future. In fact, Indiana Jones, Look to the past of its past. Instead of going to its future, it went to its past with the ark. And same thing for the other. Mm. Uh, it did, because mm. the ark of the covenant, and they drew that straight out of the biblical text. And they played with it maybe a little bit, yeah. but it still was looking past. It wasn't. Well, and to say that, hold on, to say that futurism simply means wonder. <laughs> you're stretching that definition, and you're completely pulling it out with no no etymological history. Well, but see, that's that's where I say that that wonder. I I agree with Charles, and I say that that wonder that he's talking about is the the forward the forward thought, the imaginary thought of what, what is? this new. What? What, what this new future is going to be, whether right. we whether we show it on the screen or not, whether we, you know, portray the future from that event or not, doesn't affect whether or not it is retrofuturism. But it wasn't looking forward as to what the future could be. No, it wasn't. But we are. <laughs> it was. No, no. Listen. Let, let me ask you. Let, let me ask Larry another question here, a hypothetical one. Um, what if the search for this ark, maybe this ark was a metaphor, and when they actually found it, can, you, you remember the old, um, what was that guy in, uh, was it 
Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon? I think it was Flash Gordon, the, the Chinese all, so guy. Ming, go ahead, yeah. Ming, the, Ming the Magnificent or whatever. Oh, that's Flash Gordon. Right. Flash Ming Gordon. the Merciless. 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 Thank Merciless. you so much. So Ming the Merciless had these really, uh, you know, ray gun gothic style weapons. Right? right. You know what I'm talking about? Let's say the Ark was a ray gun gothic weapon that the Nazis had. They'd found it, or developed it, or otherwise created it out of whatever. Would that then turn that Indiana Jones story into retrofuturism because that is what they projected the future to be? Yeah, I would feel comfortable with that. Okay. Uh, if, that's if, that's well, thing, that's yes, I would answer. feel comfortable, but that's not the story. I know. I know. And that's where I think the difference... I'm trying to understand the difference. And I think that's where Johnny and I are coming in and saying, if you were to wonder about something fantastic... And what you're basically then saying is that it has to be science, because futurism is about science, and that's where the literal definition comes in about science. That's the, right. That is the traditional. only definition that has okay. been mattered about okay. except for the two okay. you guys. Right, okay. So, so now you can't bring in elements of fantasy of the supernatural or the occult because that's not science. So therefore the fantasy element is what is not making a futurism. That's what you're saying. I'm saying... The occult nature. Right. There's no futurism. No futurism. There's, there's no red futurism in it. Right. So if, if that <laughs> arc... If that arc had opened up and a dragon had come out... It's that, that, would be, that would not be retrofuturism. It, no, it would not be. Okay. All right. I, just, I mean, retrofuturism... Um, if you... It doesn't... I mean, it's just... You have this completely unique, and I will say creative, okay. definition of uh, futurism, and uh, the term future, uh, which I think is where we're getting hooked on, the future component of your word. Okay. Well, let, well, now let's, we're, not, we're not getting hung up on it. No, no. But, th- but let me ask you this question. This is, is in the three of us together. This is, where the, ar- yeah, this is where the argument uh, gets really interesting, because I'm going to throw in a little ringer here. So let's say the story is about World War II, and we know that the, the Nazis were developing scientific advancements in rocketry and in uh, jet power, okay? And so let's just make an assumption then that they were able to make advancements in bioengineering. And they were able to bioengineer a mechanical monster, part man, part machine. Would you consider that to be retrofuturistic? We're talking about future, hold on, we're talking about essentially, or maybe even today still, uh, futuristic biotechnology, right? They, they did human experimentation. I know they did. I know they did. Uh, Let's say uh, they, they actually were able to fuse uh, metal and flesh. Um, okay. Would that be, would that be retrofuturistic? Well, it is referring to them using right well, at that time, and even the, hold on, hold on, Fine. even today would be considered futuristic technology. Okay. I mean, we're just now starting to be able to okay. come up with okay. robotic prosthetics. Right. That okay. So you're in agreement. You're in agreement about. that it's science because it involves uh, you know a combination of biology and engineering, right? Mechanical engineering. You put the two together, and maybe they didn't know that they could do that and they didn't know the DNA 
science at the time, but the fact that maybe the Nazis could do that to create a biomechanical monster uh, out of a human being, a warrior, a biomechanical warrior that could fight in World War II, that would be retrofuturistic. Right? Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. All right. Now, let's just say that you have an army of these biomechanical monsters that are running around the battlefields of Europe, okay? And the leader of that army, the person directing that army, happens to be a wizard. Now your story involves the retrofuturistic element of a biomechanical mm. monster. However, it involves a someone who ha- uses the power of the occult who has psychic powers, who reads auras, who reads the future through tarot cards, and has some supernatural abilities to conjure things like ghosts and to do things that, you know, kind of like a Darth Vader style, you know, using the force kind of thing, right? Now, you introduce that person into the equation. Does that then take that story and say, oh, well, it's not retrofuturistic anymore. No, because, again, adding layers of something else to it. One, a lot of science fiction, right. futurism, st- traditional futurism, included what you're talking about. Um, Trek okay. had ESP. Uh, Star Wars has the Force, as we just mentioned. Okay. Uh, th- that doesn't t- make it no longer futurism. Uh, wh- but what dominates those films? Okay, what dominates? In this case, you tell me the central subject is this robot. But now we're into something, well, what if you do this? What if you throw in this stuff? You're still getting away from the definition of futurism. You still came back and you said the central subject. Hold on, Charles. Uh, the, The central subject here being, in this imaginary movie, the Nazis use... Futuristic technology, some of which is more futuristic than what we have, okay? Sky Captain has futuristic technology more than we have. Right. Um, futuristic technology, and it's done in the 30s, so it has a retro theme. I doubt that they look like, uh, right. you know, that Honda robot. Uh, they probably has a retro theme, kind of like they had in right. uh, Iron Sky, right. uh, for example. Uh, so it's retro futurism, and, you know, you're going to throw in some... Magic, which remember what I think it was Asimov who said any sufficiently advanced technology will resemble magic to somebody, so that could be rationalized that way. We're still talking the dominant theme being here a retro futurist movie that has some fantastical, magical okay. elements to it, in the same way that Star Wars right. is a science fiction movie right. with some magical elements of the Force. Right. Okay. Well, what I just described to you was my book, Dragonfly. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it, it is an actual book, and the listeners can go out and get it because you, that's exactly that, that what I did. An excellent example of retro So, so I just that. wanted to make sure that it passed your tests. It so does. I go to the <laughs> writers' convention. I think it passes everybody's tests. <laughs> I can say. I can say. Oh my God! I, woohoo! You know, Daisy's gonna love it. It's retro- an excellent example of retrofuturism. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you see, this is where I think the agreement to disagree is, where I, I don't think we will resolve it, and that is this element of fantasy and the past and viewing the past, and and this is where 
I think that, um, you know, I think our, we've argued, Johnny and I have argued, that the element of wonder, the fantasy element of wonder, if that's the only thing that's present, said in the past, seen through the eyes of the people in the past, with the, with the associations of the society and the technology of the time, that, that view of that, that wonder, wondrous, fantastic element that I described, that that in itself can be, yeah, it's mild. I agree. I don't really think of it as being like full bore 10 on the scale. It's probably around a four or a five, but, and it's just a little bit more than an, an alternative history like Man in the High Castle. So you'd have that little extra bit of belief that's required for you to believe that Indiana Jones actually, you know, had to confront this, this thing, right? This element, this, this fantastic element. And, and to me, I don't, dif- I as an author don't differentiate that from the science. And here's, here's the other part of the punk thing that, that I think we all have to recognize uh, writers are trying to do because there's a lot of criticism, a lot of criticism of writers who, who start to dabble in steampunk and diesel punk. Why? Why? Because they are now breaking the formulaic rules of science fiction or fantasy. They're neither one nor the other. And I just described to you a story that had both. And it, what was really interesting when I wrote Dragonfly, I had a beta, beta reader project. I wrote, the, I wrote the, the, the story, and that was like, push the button, publish. And I paused, and I said, I've got to send this out to beta readers. And what I did was I actually chose beta readers who were hardcore sci-fi people. That's all they read. And I asked them, do you read fantasy? Do you read, you know, Game of Thrones? No, don't like it. Yeah, no you know, they give me the vampire cross with their fingers, right? And then I did the same with fantasy. I said, do you read science fiction? Well, I can lie, you know, not really, but, you know, I can tolerate it. And I sent it out to those two with a questionnaire. And I said, all I want you to do is evaluate this in relation to the quantity of science fiction, the quantity of fantasy, number one, that's present. Do you want more or less of either one? And the mixture of the two. And it's the mixture of the two, in my opinion, that makes punk fiction. It makes steampunk, and it makes diesel punk, atom punk, any of the punks. It's the mixture of the two. The ability for an artist, like a creative artist as a writer, or as, and we've seen the illustrations, and they're very, very good illustrators as well, it's, it's the mixture of the two that is the punk part. It's the rebellion against the formulaic prescription that says, you can't have this in your book, Mr. Cornell. It's not science fiction. If you want science, if you want this in your book, go see the fantasy people and they will tell you the formula to write your book. And then wow. I go to, and then I go to the fantasy people and you know, what do they say to me, Johnny? They say, they say this is not uh, fantasy, uh, uh, this uh, is uh, science uh, fiction. Uh, uh, uh. From Jurassic Park? Uh, uh, uh. Uh, 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 right? So that, wow. my friend, is the punk part. Wow, that, that rebellion is, from the author's perspective. That is really, really deep. That is... Okay, Larry... about the punk part, I mean, we're in agreement on that. Uh, but, but Larry, what, what Charles just said, as a creative person, that was like an epiphany moment. 
that that was really strong, Charles. And when you're talking to the writers at your conference, that's what I'm going to say. But that's, that's not going to work for retrofuturism. Um, you have to be brave enough to look through the lens of someone else's future. Look through the lens, peer through that telescope into the future, based on what that perception is of the past, not where your perception is today. Not what you know to be true. Here's an example. Here's an example. We know, we know that computers were invented. We also know there was a transition in music from the, the record, the vinyl record, to the cassette tape, to uh, the CD, and then finally to streaming music where you virtually don't need anything. We know that happened. But what if you were to go back into the 1930s when the only thing they had was the record player? How would you envision that the future of of music, or the future of telecommunications, or the future, I mean, computers, they didn't even talk about it. Do you know that, do you know that rocketry, Robert Goddard, patented, um, his first rocketry patents were in 1914, but by 1930, he was laughed out of society, uh, scientific circles for his ideas about rocketry. Several years, right. several years later, the Nazis um, put in place Pinamunda, and it was Pinamunda, the rocketry factory of Werner von Braun. And so you've got to look, go back to that. And this is where I'm coming in with this punk thing, is what I'm saying, you know, Johnny, pick up again, is you've got to be brave enough to surrender your perceptions. You've got to be brave enough to take these genre formulas and mash them together, throw in a dash of the occult, throw in a dash of horror, throw in a dash of alternative history. In, D in Dragonfly, I change history, I change chemistry, I change physics, I introduce the occult, and I, and, and I change science, uh, like the future of science technology. I, you, you make a, a very eloquent argument for diesel punk. Very eloquent argument there for or steampunk. Or steampunk. Oh, or steampunk. Um, my my focus is rather myopic here. Is diesel punk. Um, what you not make an eloquent argument for? I'm sorry. Is your definition of retrofuturism? Is that one's far too expansive, in okay. my opinion. All right. Um, I think we're going to agree to disagree on the expansiveness of it. The equating future with wonder as being synonymous, right. uh, which is what I hear you saying. There's no history. Actually, there's quite a bit of history behind the term retrofuture. It has a pretty solid history of, of writers. The term was actually coined by someone, and it, um, and in fact, there's a whole TED on it, for those who aren't familiar with it, about the TED speeches, uh, these recorded uh, yeah. speeches that, in, that a lot of people, our great people give. Postmodern Jukebox gave one, uh, and there's one by a man named Bruce McCall, a, a big artist, a retrofuturist artist. Uh, but the term retrofuturism has a very clear, solid, distinct mm -hmm. linguistic history, and it's it's not what you're saying, Charles. All it's right, not so expensive as you were saying it to be. I understand that's that's. Okay. I mean, hey, punk, that's All right. that's yours, and you can own it, and that's cool. I just don't think you're going to be able to sell 
the expansive okay. aspect of it. Well, here's what I would like to suggest. Because I, I think we are at, at kind of an impasse here. Um, you know, I, I don't think anyone's going to convince anyone tonight. So what I would love to do is let's pose the question to our to our fans, to our listeners. And let's have you guys listening chime in on this discussion. Where do you fall on retrofusionism versus diesel punk? Are they interchangeable? Are they not? Why or why not? We want to hear from you guys listening. And um, Charles, I would love to get an update from you after the writers' conference. Yes. Oh, absolutely, yes. And and fi- let's find out, you know, what Absolute. some of your reactions were. Right, right. And 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 I think that uh, uh, you know what I'm trying to do, and I think we're all trying to do really is to promote this as um, as a genre that has standing. And right now, um, what's really interesting is when I was preparing for this conference. I put two words into the Amazon search engine. I put the word steampunk in, and I put the word dieselpunk in. And I would um, suggest that you find out how many hits you get for the two. Dieselpunk is virtually unknown. Mm-hmm. And um, what, we think, what we're doing, what we're in violent agreement on, is the fact that we want more of it. Right? Sure. And Absolutely. So I think and so what I'm going to try to do with the writers is try to create more. Uh, and I'm quite excited about George uh, Martin coming up with his diesel punk thing because all of a sudden there'll be a whole lot of people saying, this is cool, where else can I find this kind of stuff? Because people become voracious, right? They, they get through the Harry Potter things and they want to do something else and want to create, you know, look for something else to read. So I'm very excited about the fact that maybe they'll discover my work or Bard's work, for example, or yours, Johnny, with, the, the, with your novel as well. So I think that it's going to be interesting to, to encourage the people in the room to start thinking about it. But I have, I've had, the reason I've done this is I've had these arguments about formulas. And one of the things is that, you know, uh, one of the really interesting things as well is that it's been very hard to get people to accept steampunk or dieselpunk work into the award system, right? Because it doesn't fit. There is no punk categories. Um, so, you know, can you take a steampunk uh, novel and win a, uh, a Nebula or Hugo Award in science fiction? Or if you go to the fantasy side, uh, well, generally, no. And so this is really kind of an interesting thing because um, we get this, this, this breaking of the formula. That's that's a great point, and um, you know we're we're bumping up against uh, a late, pretty late hour here, so I think it's time to kind of bring us to a close. But during that entire discussion, Daisy, you were very quiet. Do you I have any thoughts? You know, I'm. Uh, or are you know. on the fence? I don't fence know. Right I'm now? not really the. I'm, I'm the what now? Are you are you on the fence right now? I don't know, honestly. Um, or do you have an opinion at all? <laughs> honestly, those were a whole lot of words, and one reason, <laughs> one reason I didn't say much is because 
it takes, sometimes it takes a little longer for me to process stuff that I hear and come up with something to say about it. So that's one reason I didn't jump in was because as soon as I realized I knew what I wanted to say, <laughs> everyone was gone somewhere else. So well, uh, I'm going to have to gather my thoughts on this. And, uh, and, well, we uh, will have further conversations oh, on yeah. it for sure. Yeah, it sounds like it's ripe for conversation. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, I, you know, I love these kind of conversations. And, uh, you know, for you listeners out there, sure, Sometimes we can get a little bit heated, but, you know, it's all in the spirit of fun and, you know, in promotion of, of the genre of diesel punk and, and everything that we, uh, you know, love about the genre. And uh, these conversations, I think, help move the genre forward. Um, whether we agree or disagree, it, it sparks the conversation and it's getting us talking about it which in turn gets more people talking about it, and that's just good overall. Absolutely. Yep. And we're coming, we've come out of a, a fantastic year, 2015, of Diesel Punk with, with Agent Carter, and, and now we're getting into f- some more. So I think it's going to be great for the, the, your listeners, Johnny, uh, to, to do what you said, to co- come back and say, what do you, what, if you wanted to, if you didn't have the time to write a novel, what would you want somebody to write a novel about? What would you somebody, somebody make a film about? What are the what-ifs that you want answered um, to create some, you know, some future diesel punk? would be great. Yeah. I'd love to know that. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff, good stuff. Well, Larry, you got any uh, last words before we sign off? No, not really. Uh, Charles, I very much appreciate you being here. Very stimulating conversation, my friend. And uh, thank you, Pat. Uh, it's fantastic having you with us. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I, I, I think we're, we're in more agreement than than we're in disagreement. I bet we are. Too. Yeah, I think so. Excellent. Well, with that, uh, Larry, why don't you uh, sign us off? All right. Well, thank you, Johnny. Uh, wow, it's been a great show, folks. But, you know, when the fun ends, uh, look around your neighborhood. There are still, you know, here in uh, the Western Hemisphere, it's still very hot. Uh, there's some there's stormy areas. You know, there's people still struggling in Baton Rouge and other parts of the country and different parts of the world are struggling. Oh, just look down your block. Check on your neighbor. Uh, see how they're doing. Because uh, take care of each other. This is what life is all about. Amen, my brother. Daisy O'Dare. Well, I've got to say, it's been nice uh, sitting here and chatting with you guys again. It's been nice to chat with Charles again after a while. And uh, I uh, I can't wait to see where this conversation goes. And maybe I'll have gathered my thoughts more about it on the uh, on the next time we bring it up. Outstanding. Charles, you got any last words for our listeners? I am um, just—I'm in the process of moving uh, my uh, moving my cheese. My cheese is moving, right? <laughs> uh, it's moving from Detroit, Michigan, where it's starting to get cool, and it's heading to Florida, where apparently it never stops raining. So, um, yeah. So I'm I'm looking forward to that big change in my life, and maybe my perception is going to change. 
You never yeah. can tell. Never can tell. Yeah. Changes in latitude. Good. Changes in attitude. That's what it is. Yep. That's me all over. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us, and thank you, listeners, for tuning in. We couldn't do this show without you. And if you like the show, tell two, three hundred of your closest friends and family to check out the Diesel Powered Podcast. Give us a good review, a five-star review on iTunes or Stitcher. Help us get the word out to uh, everyone on the interwebs about the amazing product that we're producing. And if you don't agree that it's an amazing product, don't say anything to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. You can always send us email, and we would love to get your comments at uh, feedback at dieselpoweredpodcast.com. You can send us an email. Share your thoughts about this episode. Post them on our Facebook page or post uh, your comments on Twitter. Uh, Twitter handle is Diesel Podcast. Facebook page is Facebook.com slash Diesel Powered Podcast. We would love to interact with you and and hear what you have to say about this topic. And uh, on behalf of everyone here at the Diesel Powered Podcast, I'll just sign off by saying swing hard, swing often. And we'll catch you on the flip side.